0: Just about uh, 30 minutes ago, I had my first rush of adrenaline through my veins. As I was out in the hallway and I was talking to someone, and two people came running up and said, Ed, 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 your microphone's on. (laughs) And then you know what went through my head was, uh, what did I say? (laughs) And then, second, how long has it been on? So that was my first um, encounter with adrenaline this morning, but I'm going to give you something here that's going to be your first encounter with adrenaline this morning. Godly living, submission in marriage. Uh-huh. <laughs> now you're getting it. Your first burst of adrenaline now, submission in marriage. And so I want to make sure that all of you out there understand that I am only the messenger. I'm not the author, just the messenger. So in light of this stuff, let me carry on with what uh, Pat has been doing and setting such a wonderful foundation for us to live in. And that's this whole idea of going through 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you know, we've been going several weeks through that, and You might recall that a couple weeks ago, Pat addressed that prominent group of people, Christians, that are both slaves, masters, um, challenged in that relationship. And uh, Peter encourages the slaves to be patient and endure the unjust suffering. You'll remember that. Well, this morning we have another prominent class of people that we're going to be looking at, That also has to do with submission. The slaves are submissive to their masters. This also has something to do with submission. And it is the relationship of a wife that is born again of the power of the Spirit of God. And a husband who is not. And so this whole idea of submission does cause a sense of adrenaline to flow through our veins. Peter was telling the wives there in this uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he's telling the wives they're doing it wrong. They were desirous because they knew Christ and their husband did not to help him understand the urgency to give their, his life to Christ. But they were doing it wrong. And so Peter gives them the counsel on how they should be looking at Uh, approaching this issue of the gospel of Christ with their unbelieving husband. So in light of that, this morning you can help me out by, first of all, standing up if you would. And then what I'd like you to do is help me read the passages this morning in Scripture that um, we can all uh, identify with. I broke the reading up into three different groups. The first group is uh, women. The second group is actually not a group, it's myself. And the third group is men. So let's read through this together. Uh, Women only, would you mind reading verses 1 through 4 there? For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Men. Father, bless you for this morning for the privilege of being together in the assembly. Thank you for the wise words of the Spirit through the pen of Peter that are here for us today. No matter what stage of life we're in, we have somebody or we have ourselves that this Scripture will have an impact in. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for being our counselor in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we're going to look at God's glorifying behavior in a marriage and what it looks like, a snapshot, because this is not all that God has to say about it. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, our text for this morning, if you'll look at verses 1 and 2, we're going to look, first of all, at the idea of the responsibility of the wife. Now, there's all that stuff up there for you, so you're going to read ahead of me. That's okay. Um, I will not feel um, inferior to your knowing what I'm about to say. Can you see my knees knocking already? All right, this whole idea about wives being responsible is first of all concerning their behavior in the area of submission. So verse 1 says, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, your own husband. So right away from verse 1 in the first few words, we encounter our first challenge in reading the scripture. It says, wives in the same way. Well, the natural question is, in what way? And so you have to look back up at what Peter has already written, and that is over there in chapter 2, verses 13, 18, and then 21 to 25, what Pat explained a few weeks ago. But we need to know what, in what way, And so we're not going to really look at that because we've already plowed that field a couple weeks ago, but you can certainly see it there for yourself. So just as Jesus basically was submissive to God the Father, a Christian wife should be submissive to her husband. Verse 1, in the same way be submissive to your husband, that's the second thing in the context of the, the scripture that we encounter that is a challenge for us. Be submissive to your husband's to your own husbands. Now, one of the first things we need to understand about this whole idea of submission, I'm sure if you've been around for a while, you've known Christ, that you have heard over and over again maybe what this word means. But the reality is it can either fade from our mind or we have not yet understood what it means. So to be submissive can cause a whole lot of challenges in a relationship. It does not suggest, we're going to try to end some of this stuff now, it does not suggest inequality or inferiority. So wives, when you hear that word, submit to your husband, it may very well just flat tighten your jaw. And I think it does that because today in this world, in our pride world, in our own prideful life, it is a disgusting word. It is a negative connotation. We certainly don't want it aimed at us. We don't want anybody to tell us, be submissive. Because that means inferior. And that brings insecurities. But the word submission really is a very beautiful word. I hope by the time you're done today, you'll understand that what I'm doing is just simply adding on to what Pat said over the past few weeks. It's a beautiful word. Now I won't go into great detail because Pat did, but it is a military term. It says to arrange yourself in a place under, to rank yourself, I'll give it to you this way, to rank yourself under the one that is going to have authority over you and the one that has responsibility for you. I think that's beautiful. One of my best things to do is go under the leadership of someone else so I don't have to do anything. In fact, you know, Pat knows that when we go on these short term trips, when I'm with him, Hallelujah. I can sit back and knowing full well that Pat has the authority and the responsibility over me in that regard, and so I can follow along. It's a beautiful picture. So let's go through a little series here about what submission does not mean. First, because it's so maligned, and even as the outside world or sometimes the inside world, Christians don't understand it, it gets abused. So the text itself, verses 1 through 7, gives us a correct understanding. It infers the things that submission is not. So first of all, submission, oh, it's already been there. Ah, there you go. You already knew that, didn't you? <laughs> submission is not, it doesn't mean that a husband, what? Is put in a place of Christ. Christ. Now, that's kind of obvious, right? He's not put in the place of Christ. The allegiance, our allegiance, any allegiance of any human being is to Christ Jesus. Not a woman allegiance to her husband. It does not mean that. He is not in the place of Christ. Hopefully, that's cemented for you. Peter affirms this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The second thing is, you can see it there for yourself, submission does not mean giving up your independent thought. Now, I I think that's probably pretty critical for a wife. It's not a robotic submission to someone in authority. It's not just going brainless and following your husband. You don't give up your independent thought. In fact, Peter told this to the wives, wives, be submissive to your own husband because I suspect he knew they would tell the husband. And then he would ponder, he would begin hopefully to understand and respond to God's word. And I think that's pretty significant because they were had the opportunity then to express their own thoughts, their own opinions. So to say that it means you need to give up your independent thought is wrong. You do not have to give up independent thought. In fact, if you do, the man's only going to be thinking with half of his brain. That's the reality. I need Robin to tell me what's going on. In fact, I need her to tell me more about what's going on because sometimes I'm blinded, I can't see it. I'm functioning with only one half. And rats, if God doesn't show me exactly what I need to know through her that I denied beforehand, and he proves her Right? The third thing is submission does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. Now you'd think that wouldn't need to be said. It does need to be said. If, for instance, if he was to tell this particular woman who is a believer and he's an unbeliever, stop your Christianity. Start being more like me. It's hindering our relationship. It's hindering our fun in life. Stop it. She's going to have to respectfully refuse. If he tells her, obey this or that, go ahead and lie, go ahead and steal, go ahead and cheat, go ahead and fudge on the taxes, whatever, and he's telling her this, and she's trying to submit herself under his leadership, she has to refuse that and any other immoral act that is explicitly stated in the scriptures. The fourth thing is submission is not based upon lesser intelligence or competence, Lesser intelligence or incompetence. In fact, think about the text. The very fact that she knows Christ and he doesn't ought to give you some insight to this. She knows Christ and he doesn't. She's had things open to her life and a vision of understanding of things deeper than he could possibly imagine. It's not lesser intelligence or even competence. And what does it not mean? What else? There it is. Submission is not based. Well, it doesn't mean, rather, being fearful or timid. Verse 6 says not to give way to fear is what she's told by Peter. And verse 7 says she's a weaker partner. So there's a lack of physical strength, but there is no lack of Uh, emotional strength or spiritual strength or courage so it doesn't mean that she is um, to be fearful or timid and then finally the last one there is submission is not inconsistent with equality with Christ equality in Christ rather this whole idea of equality, right? We just struggle with this stuff. I want to be either the same as that person or I want to be better than that person. That's just, I guess, the sinful human nature. But, you know, equality is consistent with the importance, the dignity, and the honor. So it's not inconsistent that with that. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus himself, right, um, had to submit to the father and to the mother, his father and his mother, earthly father and mother, And he also submitted to God the Father. So Christians um, are also told in this very same letter that they are to submit to the governing authorities. Even if they're ungodly governing authorities. Unbelievers. So the idea of being inferior is not even in here. And I just pray that we would stop taking it that way. I pray that we would tell others about what we've learned these past several weeks about First Peter and infuse the thought of the beauty of that word submission. Peter affirms just the opposite in it. Absolutely just the opposite. So, what does submission mean? I don't think that's up there, so let me put it up there. What does submission mean in the first place? Submission, it's there. An inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. That's what submission is. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. It is a willingly choosing to submit to the authority of the husband and his leadership. But it's scary. It's a scary thing, especially in the context of this particular letter from Peter. Because this particular letter from Peter is going to women who were treated like dirt, who had no value, who had the the idea there was no equality there. They were, in some cases, living under very abusive men, men that were tyrants, it's just a culture. And so it's scary for them. And when this woman who was sitting in the presence of the gospel with her husband, the gospel by God's grace falls upon her ears and she's transformed uh, into a new creation in Christ, when that happens and she makes a decision to follow through on her commitment to Christ, it can be viewed by that unbelieving husband as desertion. You've deserted me. In fact, Pat talked a few weeks ago, rightfully so, that when a woman marries a husband, she falls under his leadership and his God. I don't know about you, but I know Christians that have a challenge with this. Go against me and you're deserting me. You're either for me or you're against me. She could have severe abuse poured out on her. So when this woman submits, she is making a a choice, a willful choice to do this. The husband's the leader, so she's going to obey this thing. Even if she disagrees. Anybody here know that a woman just flat out might disagree? If it's you, don't raise your hand and point to yourself. Just if you know someone out there. It's a challenge. When I think about this idea of deep down inside, you absolutely, completely disagree, but the Word of God says, submit. So back to verse 1, what verse 1 tells us is there's an unforeseen fruit of this. See, that's always the challenge, isn't it? There is an unforeseen fruit that comes, but you've got to wait for the fruit. I don't like waiting. You guys like waiting? I went into McDonald's. I don't know why I got off on this. I went into McDonald's the other day, and I walked in just to get a Coke. It was a long drive home. I wanted to stay awake. And as I walked into McDonald's, there's a line, four or five people. And there's no one at the counter, and there's two people behind the counter that are turning their back towards the counter, and they're doing something like this. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, I can be patient. And 10 seconds, 10 seconds passed. I thought, <laughs> okay, it's fast food, right? <laughs> so this woman next to me, she says, I think they want us to use the kiosk. I said, really? And she she must, you know, he's old. He probably doesn't know how to use that, right? So she actually says, come on, I'll help you. (laughs) Now I know she thinks I'm old. (laughs) So I said, no, no, that's okay, that's okay. I'm just going to see what happens. So I step up to the counter, and like about a minute and a half later, I'm thinking, she's right. They're trying to force me into using this kiosk. Everything within me says, "No, I'm going to go back to the counter." I stayed there until this woman went by and said, "Excuse me." Nothing. "Excuse me." Nothing. Said, okay, where's the kiosk? <laughs> <laughs> nah, I got my I got my Coke. It was okay. But the challenge is, you know, willingly when actions speak louder than words in many cases. So what Peter is telling these these women is to Have a wordless witness. Have a wordless witness to their husband. That speaks volumes of the secure Christian wife. Be secure by having a wordless witness. So wives, how difficult is that for you to do? How difficult would it be for your friend to do? To remain silent in times and not mention the gospel. Now put yourself culturally, historically back to where this woman is. Now your frame of mind is going to change quite a bit. Let me tell you about what this woman may be feeling. I don't know, I'm not there, but in my mind's eye, she may be compelled to say these things. Something about the subject of salvation. Just let me slide one word in there about the salvation of the soul. She knows Jesus is the answer for her problems and for his. She may be getting desperate and losing hope. And she thinks it's the 11th hour and no one's doing anything, so I gotta do something. And here are uh, a few of the compelling reasons she thinks and why she needs to speak. She needs a spiritual, intimate time with her husband. She needs harmony in their communication, direction, and decision. She needs to know her children will have a godly model in leadership, in the home, and outside. She needs peace about eternal salvation of her husband's soul. And so the wife persists to speak again and again and again and again and again and that can cause adverse reactions, correct? That can cause adverse reactions. Here's some of the adverse reactions I believe can take place. She may panic and overreact when the husband doesn't respond the way she desires him to respond. She may become a nag, even treating him like a child. She may be focused on her task and feeling so overwhelmed with the responsibility to lead his soul to Christ. She may create a distance between her and her husband as a result of this. And the distance may even cause him to push himself away from other people that God brings along the path with the gospel of Christ. Just doesn't want to hear it anymore. This is why Peter tells the wife, live the life. Just live the life. I mean, you've told him once. You might have told him twice. You think he's going to get it if you tell him three times? Uh-uh. He knows what the gospel is. The heart is the arena in which only God works. You can't do that. So he tells you, just let your, let your life be lived out. So here's the question this woman may have. But by what means would my husband be won over if I don't speak? Right? That's always the question, right? If I don't, who will? And it's really done out of a good-hearted desire, right, to see him come to Christ, is to see him have the things he needs to have. And there's brokenness and bitterness and pain and suffering in the midst of this stuff. When one week goes by, then a month, then a year, then two years, and ten years, And still nothing, God, where are you? If you have the English Standard Version, this is the answer to that question. English Standard reads, when the husband sees, S E E. The New Living Translation says, they will be won over by observing your inner qualities. Get the answer? They'll be won over when they see, not when they hear, when they see. The inner qualities that he's talking about, Peter's talking about, are invisible. You cannot see them. They're personality traits, new personality traits put there by Christ, but you can't see them, but they will quickly appear in both the word and the action of this particular wife. So wives, we can be encouraged by what Peter has to say. Those inner qualities are there. They're difficult. What he's saying is difficult. Mm -mm. Quiet, walk, live it. It's difficult. It flies in the face of everything you want to do, you intuitively desire to do out of a good heart, but it flies in the face of that. And I, I think no amount of your speaking loudly to him no matter how fast you speak and no matter what decibel you you reach, there is nothing going to have greater impact than you living your life out before your husband. Amen? Speaks loudly. And if you look at verse 6, there's an example there. Peter doesn't just leave them dry. He's saying, I'm not telling you something that's a fairy tale. There's an example here from the Old Testament. He says the example is Sarah's obedience to Abraham. It's an appropriate occur- encouragement for these wives. Sarah, I'll just cut to the chase here. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him master, but it meant trusting Abraham and trusting God in uncertain, unpleasant, and even dangerous situations. I'll give you the text in Genesis. It goes all the way from twelve Genesis chapter 12 all the way to chapter 20. Just read it all, and you'll see it. And Peter makes two distinct comments in here, at least I think would be helpful if I were that woman in her place. Number one, he says that you will be descendants of, or, or I'm sorry, daughters of Sarah. Daughters of Sarah. And secondly, he says, what he says is conditional. Verse six, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. If you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Both of those verbs are a a continual way of living your life. Continual way of living your life. Don't give way to fear. And then literally, you have become the daughters of Sarah. So Sarah's submission to Abraham was trusting God. That's what Peter says. Wives, that's what you need to do. Trust God. But it's conditional if you. And so the woman submits to the husband, continually hoping God is working in her midst. And if she does that, she will not be terrified. She won't be terrified. I just think of some things here she might be terrified about. Not terrified about the leadership or lack of it in her husband. Not terrified by the obstinate refusal of the gospel, not terrified by a lack of spiritual input in the home. But she's not just flippant it about it. She's got a trust that is anchored in the character of her God. I was talking to somebody this morning, and you know, the, you know the comment, just reminding them about it, that when you don't know the providential hand of God, trust in the heart of God, right? You know that. That's what this woman is doing. And then if you look at verse 3 here, verse 3, we're going to start looking now at the idea of the concern of beauty. You know, you're going to put off, you're going to throw away, if you will, that idea of winning him to the gospel through your speech, and now you're going to put on something that's very, very important. It concerns the beauty. You minimize the external beauty, and you accent the internal beauty. You know, it's, it's interesting when you read back in the culture of what these women did. Everybody's got their own definition of beauty, right? I mean, first of all, starting out with the hair, he talks about the hair, the jewelry, and the clothing, right? I mean, you probably know this stuff, but they used to braid their hair, tie their hair in knots, and stack it up on their head. The only time I know about Robin doing that—oh, I won't say it. No, never. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's Right? Huh? Okay. <laughs> All right. So concerning the beauty, they're stacking their hair up on top of their head uh, in knots. And so really, the women were re- ridiculously addicted to the extravagant. I read uh, one Roman poet um, who says this about it. He's a poet in the first and uh, early second century. He says, it was as though a question of reputation or life were at stake. So great is the trouble that she takes in a quest for beauty. With so many knots, she stacks her hair high. And then Clement of Alexandria says this. Women were concerned for distributing their hair. And when sleep comes to them, it's with a terror. lest least they should unknowing, unknowingly spoil their hairstyle. Now, I can agree with that one. I'm okay there. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 says this about it. In, in the church, you know, it, right, he writes, Timothy writes, a concern for women having golden combs and nets used in the ornamentation of their hair. It's a big thing. And then next, the apostle goes into jewelry, and he says, wearing uh, the jewelry, which literally means putting around you, Putting around you, these wives were covering their person with lavish displays of gold. And then he jumps down into clothing. Uh, By the way, if you're going to put, you know, he didn't say anything about makeup, but, you know, I guess makeup could be thrown in too. But in my personal opinion, uh, in J. Vernon McGee's words, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. That was J. Vernon McGee <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Oh my God. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, then he goes into clothing. Maybe wisely Peter stayed away from makeup. <laughs> But he goes into clothing now. This idea of putting on apparel. Apparel is just an outer, outer clothing, right? And so what Peter is saying here is he's not saying don't wear any clothing. Ah, uh, duh, obvious, right? But what was happening is these, these believing wives were once unbelievers, and they dressed a certain way, a lot of it just immodestly, right? So now they're a new creation in Christ, and he's saying that you think by some way somehow dressing like that is going to give you great access to the heart of your unbelieving husband? No. Stacking your hair and stuff and making yourself look all dolled up with this gold. I don't know what that would look like, stacked up hair, gold all over you. Ah, weird. But anyway, do you think that's going to draw him to Christ? You're using worldly, earthly, fleshy methods for spiritual things. And so really what he's saying is you're hiding Christ. Let Christ be seen in your actions. And then there's something there to be seen. So verse 4, he talks about it. The unbelieving husband, he says in verse 4, Peter describes the inner qualities that can be displayed before this unbelieving husband. And they're up there, the last bullet, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This idea of gentle is used three times in the New Testament. Twice it speaks about Jesus. It means not insistent of one's own rights. A lot of times we want to be more right than we want to be righteous. One's own desires. Though she was able to voice them and give her input and opinion, she's insistent. Gentleness means not being pushy, not being selfish, not being assertive, not demanding her own way. Such a gentle spirit is beautiful to everybody around, especially the unbelieving husband. Can you, can you imagine the radical transformation that will take place? It took place in our relationship, only it was beneficial for her for Robin more than it was for me because I was the one that was all dressed up in apparel that stunk. So she's not insistent. And so why? Why is this such a beautiful thing that God has done? A beautiful word in his arranging of the union of the marriage relationship. No doubt it's because that quiet, continual trust in God to supply her needs pleases God. Anybody know 2 Corinthians 5, 9? Beautiful passage. Paul says, whether I'm in the body or I'm absent from the body, I make it my aim. And it depends upon your translation. It might, may, he might say in another translation, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to God. That's what's taking place. The wife trusts God with her inner attitude A display before her husband of what God has done. So the qualities are described as unfading. I mean, look at the text for yourself there. Unfading means it's not going to pass away with age. It's not going to decay. Things that fade away, maybe even at the end of this world. That is not an inner quality. Clothing, jewelry, and hair have problems in this particular area, right? What I wrote down was clothing is subject to A fashion, a new fashion, right? I was wearing my Levi's the other day. They actually had holes that I wore in them. (laughs) I can sell them now for twice the amount of money I bought them for. (laughs) So, you know, fashion changes. Clothes fade. Clothes can get torn. Hair falls out. It turns gray. There's big money in coloring your hair. On top of that, jewelry can be damaged, jewelry can be tarnished. If you buy the kind of jewelry I, I buy, it can, it can be tarnished, it can be lost or stolen. Peter's saying the inner qualities, nothing can happen. They're yours. Display them. So let me go to verse 7 now. we start talking about the husband. Wives, six verses, verses one. Equal impact. Because the reality is just as God told the wife to be submissive to the husband, he's now going to tell the husband, you be submissive in your service to your wife. So this is kind of cool. Men, wives, hold your men's hands so he doesn't get up and walk away. Verse 7. What do they do? What do men do? Peter says, husbands in the same way. Referring back up to chapter 2 again, and we know that he is now, it's a, sh- it's a little bit of a shift in the passage, because before he was talking to, un- there was a believing woman and an unbelieving man, right? But now he's shift, and he's addressing the believing men, and I think that's because God has nothing to say to the unbelieving man except confess your sin and repent. Why would he want to give the unbelieving man instructions on how to live godly? So there's three basics, I think, three basic responsibilities for caring for your wife, men. And here it is, consideration, chivalry, and companionship. Three areas in which you can care for your wife. So let's go first of all to consistently um, considering your wife. Verse seven, live with your wives in an understanding way. Anybody have a different translation than that? Live with your wives in an understanding way in verse 7. This is the husband's counterpart. He's supposed to be submissive now. It's his part. So we can call it considerate leadership. You're going to be considerate to your wife. First basic responsibility, being considerate, would look like a lot of different things. But let me give you a definition here. And this is just a Webster's. Thoughtful of the rights and feelings of others. Showing kind awareness Or regard for another's feelings and circumstances. Peter tells the husband, be considerate, be respectful, honor your wife. And then he talks about this thing about the weaker vessel, and that probably tightens your jaw too. who's weak? I'm not weak. In fact, if you look at today's television, I don't recommend you do some of this stuff, but if you look at today's television, who's the hero in all this stuff anymore? a woman. It's just fact. I'm not giving you an opinion. It's, it's fact. The man's cowering and the woman runs in and, and rescues him. So anyway, Peter says uh, we need to certainly include physical strength, you know, that she's a weaker vessel in the physical realm. It's God's design. We could include a wife's emotional needs. Doesn't mean she's weaker emotionally. Don't, don't get that from it. But what we can consider is her emotional needs. And then really, husbands, we should really understand that we can't fill our wives' life with criticisms, with criticisms and conflict. It's not what we're called to. We're called to serve and to honor her. So chivalry, kind of a lost word, right? So lost I had to actually look it up to figure out what I was going to be talking about. But here's, here's something that would probably get me thrown out of some places today, chivalry. Marked by gracious, courteous, high minded consideration, especially towards women. Here we see that the husband can be a provider and a protector and be thankful for it. And here we see that the woman who is submitting should be thankful for that leader. No derogatory nuances here about the weaker vessel, nothing there from, from Peter. If you see it, it's your own doing. Consideration or considerate leadership is not optional. Is that up there? Make it bolder. Yeah, at the bottom. It's not optional, men. Considerate leadership is not optional. That means a husband cannot rightfully opt out of doing that he can't rightfully, rightfully say, I don't want to make decisions or I don't want to be involved in decisions, or I don't want to be involved in the activities, I don't, I don't want to do anything else but passively participate in this relationship. That's not what I see being said here. When you're supposed to honor her and respect her. So what does considerate uh, leadership really look like? The companionship, that falls right in there also, just having good old-fashioned companionship. It says in verse 7, dwell with your wives, live with her. It's an association of living together with one another. The word knowledge is an intelligent recognition of the marriage relationship. So living together according to the knowledge is a point that Peter's trying to make through all this. He doesn't specify how to do that which is really good, it leaves it up to us to be a good student of our spouse, husbands of our wives, but certainly knowing would include the principles and purposes of Scripture for marriage, husbands. Knowing that the wife's desires, her goals, and her frustrations. Basically, know how she ticks and what ticks her off. That's, would you think that's very good to know? How do you treat her with respect or with honor if you don't know some of these things? A husband should live according to the knowledge of this great marriage that God has given to them and joint heirs. So, bottom line is this. I want to talk a little bit about, just a couple of minutes here, about the rewards that you get, that a husband gets. First of all, he gets to honor her. That's a reward. This whole idea of the word of honor is precious. Something of great value And I know in the daily grind of the the week, it doesn't really seem like you see great value there. And the wife doesn't really feel like she's greatly valued. I understand that. But this is the mark. This is the place to go, to always bring yourself back to. So summing it up, you're holding her precious. You're actually literally going to assign or portion off a piece for her. That means you can't come home from work and say, I just worked 60 hours. I have a right to put my feet up and sit back and do absolutely nothing. Where's the portion for her? And the reality is, this is freaky, but when you get home from work, your work actually starts. That's a great mission field. It's a great way of earning a living. That's cool. You need that kind of stuff. But the reality is, the work is here. That's what's here. And to be a good employee, that's also important. But this work really starts when you get home. So the last verse there, he throws in, Peter throws in this thing, that there's a purpose for you doing this, men, so that your prayers won't be hindered. So your prayers won't be hindered. I'll give you the the Reader's Digest version here. So that your prayers will not be cut off. The inference is if you honor your wife, if you respect your wife, if you live with her in a considerate way, right, with knowledge that your prayers, God hears and will help. But how in the world do you expect to do all this gunk, the opposite of this, and expect your prayers for God to help? Until he hears the prayer, forgive me, and reignites the flame, and now he helps. Does it make sense to you? So here's what we walk home with. Three things. I'm just going to read them, so we'll be able to leave in a minute. Our task is to look at these three life lessons. Uh, Number one, women may find themselves in the same position today, married to an unbeliever. What Peter stresses is the importance of Christ-like behavior to influence a husband rather than the outward adornment. Just believe it. The Word of God is true. God's been at this a long time, right? Hadn't seen anything new. Number two, marriage is lifted to its highest plane by the call of a husband to treat his wife with consideration, respect, and honor. The third life lesson is this. Husbands and wives should remember that they have a shared faith, joint heirs, joint recipients of the gift of life, and Praying partners. Thus the behavior is absolutely critical to effective biblical marriage. Let me pray. Father, bless you again for the time this morning to look a little bit into your word. Father, to understand that this precious group, this prominent group of the first century, uh, was in a bind. And what a gracious, loving act of our God to come forward to a group of women struggling to have a relationship with an unbelieving husband. And what a gracious act of great love and compassion for the soul of the lost husband. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for this chapter written in a canonized scripture. For all of eternity that we can answer questions that others might give to us in these particular areas and might live out what your desire is and your design in marriage in christ's name amen